So I want to start today's message with a phrase, delayed gratification. Anybody familiar with that phrase? You ever heard that phrase before? I hope so. If not, it means that you're willing to put off getting something that you want or being satisfied until a later point, a later date in your life. And its opposite is instant gratification, which is what our culture is really pushing on us. You deserve the best. You deserve it now. You should have what you want. You should have it now. You shouldn't have to wait for anything. You're a good person, and you should really enjoy all this expensive stuff, even if it means you've got to put it on credit cards and not have to wait and save up for it. So instant gratification is the opposite of delayed gratification. Now, there was a groundbreaking scientific study at Stanford University in the late 60s and early 70s, and it actually found that those who could delay gratification were happier, more successful, and better adjusted than those who were not willing to delay gratification. Anybody familiar with this study? Okay, a couple of you. What they did is they took some young children and they put them in a room where they offered them a marshmallow. But there was a catch. They said, you can eat this marshmallow or we're going to leave the room. If you wait until we get back, you can have two marshmallows. Okay? (laughs) So one now or two later. It was to show if the kids were willing to wait for more or wait for better later. Then the adult would leave the room, and they'd observe the child on monitors and see how they would react. Some instantly just ate the marshmallow. Give me that. You know, just give me that. Some acted like they wanted to, but they didn't. Some, some really struggled. Some picked it up. They'd put it down. They'd pick it up. They'd smell it. They'd put it on their lips, and, you know, it's, it's, you need to look it up. It's really fascinating. And then after a while, some of them would just go ahead and eat it. Like, I can't, I can't handle it. So... When the adult came back, if they hadn't eaten the marshmallow, they got another marshmallow. They could eat two marshmallows then. But if they'd eaten it, they got what they got, and that was it. So there was a reward for waiting. Now, the test actually included following the kids throughout their lives years later to see how they handled things in their lives. And it was found, not unanimously, but pretty much across the board, that the kids who delayed gratification... The kids who waited and got the second marshmallow were generally happier, they were better adjusted, and more successful than their counterparts who didn't wait and just ate the one marshmallow. Now, let me ask you a question. Where do you fit in this continuum? Are you, let's eat the one marshmallow now, because heck, eat, drink, and enjoy because tomorrow we die, or do you wait on the second marshmallow? Are you willing to delay gratification? Do you want good now, or do you want better later? Better later is better. Good later is better. It's a good motto to live by. And we see that in the Bible. We see the Bible supports this as much as, if not more than, science. So, how do you say that, Jason? Well, let's read today's passage from Matthew 10, verses 24 through 33, which I think will show us 
what we're talking about. So if you would please stand as we read the scriptures together. And I will need your help there, Andrew. I'm just blank screen up here. Matthew 10, 24 through 33, Jesus speaking to His disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing over your word and over your people by the power of your Spirit this morning. We have to have you move. We have to have you change us. We have to have you give us understanding or we will not understand. We will not change. We will not do the things that we see in your word today. So we ask for your help to understand and to do these words for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we've seen over the past few weeks that that Jesus is preparing his men to send them out to do the works that he has been doing over the length of his ministry thus far. After calling the twelve to him, he's preparing them to go out and apostolically extend and multiply His ministry as they heal, deliver, cleanse, and preach the nearness of the kingdom of the heavens. We said last week that this discourse in Matthew 10 was for them specifically in some ways and also for all of Jesus' disciples throughout history in other ways. He said He was sending them out with His authority and that they were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. He told them to take no money or anything extra at all, even a change of clothes, because they would deserve to have others take care of them as they went around working from town to town and village to village. He said He was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and that they would be delivered over to be flogged and tried and would stand before governors and kings. But... They weren't to worry or prepare for how to defend themselves in these situations. He again promised provision for them in this case in the form of what to say in the very hour that they needed it. He said divisions would reach down into their very families and that they would be hated by all on account of His name. And He finished last week by saying that they would not finish this work and that we wouldn't finish this work until He came as the Son of Man to receive His eternal kingdom. Now that's quite a mouthful we've already covered, right? So now, today, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, is where we start this morning. Now, keep in mind where we've been, okay? And, and let me read that again. What, that recap that I just gave you, read, 
Let's read that again in light of what I just read. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, it would be easy to take this verse out of its context. And I think even out of context, it has good meaning. Like, you know, I want to be like Jesus. But in the context, this is not saying it's enough that a disciple looks like Jesus. What he's saying is, it's enough that you look like me in the face of persecution. As they hate you, as they deliver you over to the courts, as they flog you in the synagogues, it's going to be enough that you're like me in those situations. Enough. What, now what does it mean? We just came out of a section that had Jesus saying that His disciples, now being sent out as apostles, will suffer persecution and be hated by all on account of His name. So a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. You're going to be hated. That just makes sense. Because a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And we'll see that more fully in the next verse. But Jesus is simply saying that the disciples don't hold a higher or better position than He has held. They, as His disciples, are not above Him, their teacher. They, as His servants, are not above their master. They're not above Him. They don't get a place of higher honor or more respect than Jesus did. And they should know that up front especially as they're going out in Jesus' name and authority. He is the teacher. He is the master. And they, even as they go out, are the disciples and the servants here. Now listen, there is a very clear call in the kingdom of God to recognize authority. Young people, recognize the authorities in your life and submit to them. You are not above your parents, children. You are not above your professors, college students. Even though sometimes you may feel like you are. You're like, this guy is not very sharp. You are not above your bosses, workers. And if that means that you suffer injustice, if that means that you've got to suck it up and bow under the pressure of the professor or the boss or the parent, that's what you should do in the name of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I've suffered and you're not above me. I have been persecuted and you're not above me. Know your place in this continuum. And it is as the servant. It is as the student. It is as the disciple, not the master. We don't tell Jesus what should happen. We don't get into a pinch and say, God, it should not be this way. Verse 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So there are roles here. R-O-L-E-S. Not those delicious things you put butter on and... Oh, sorry, I got off on a roll tangent. I was on a roll. So there are roles here, R-O-L-E-S, clear and understood roles. And with those roles known, it should be easy to know what the goal is within these roles. As Jesus' disciples, it is enough that they be like Jesus. 
in the midst of persecution, in the midst of mistreatment, they should be like Jesus. And that's enough for them. Well, how was Jesus in the midst of persecution? He who could have called down legions of angels to protect and to vindicate Him. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. As His servants, it's enough that they be like their master. And in this case, that means that they know about... They see and even embrace the mistreatment and the persecution. Jesus knew what He was coming to. He knew that He would be rejected. He knew that He would be cast out. He knew that He would be crucified. He tells His disciples that over and over and over again. Peter pipes up and says, May it never happen to you. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not serving God's plans, but men's plans. Jesus knew that He was coming down to be persecuted. And then He looks at His disciples. He says, it's enough for you to be like me in the midst of your persecution. We don't deserve better than Jesus. We don't deserve better than what Jesus got. We're the servants. We're the disciples. It's enough. It's enough as we look at mistreatment and persecution for us to simply be like Jesus. They become like Him and that they do not fight for their rights. They do not try to escape the persecution or the hardship, but rather they look it full in the face and they entrust themselves to God. That's enough! This makes me think of a passage that's come up several times already in our journey through Matthew from 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, suffering... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That's enough. That's enough for us. We talked about this some on Wednesday night too as it pertained to David who said to Saul that the Lord would judge between him and Saul. Jesus is saying that for His disciples, for His servants, it is enough for them to be like Him. It's enough. Here up front at the beginning of their work, at the beginning of their call, at the beginning of their being sent out, it's enough that they be like Jesus. And that's true of all of His Jesus' disciples in all of their situations, isn't it? What do I need in this situation? I need to be like Jesus. And that's enough. If I have enough, I don't need any more. If I'm like Jesus, I don't need anything else. If these twelve are like Him, it will be enough for them. They won't need anything else. It's enough. So yeah, that's cool. It makes sense. But look at what's next. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says that they need to get ready for some things that are already happening. He says if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul. Well, we saw in chapter 9 that very thing happened. After Jesus had delivered a demon-oppressed man, the Pharisees say this, 
in 934. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Who's the prince of demons? Satan. And Beelzebul is another word, is another name, another translation of Satan. The Pharisees were intent on pinning Jesus' activities to Satan. We'll see it again in Matthew 12 where they say this, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It's all that the Pharisees could do to try to discredit him in the eyes of the masses who were seeing all that was going on. And back in our passage today, Jesus says, If they're going to do this to me, they're going to do it to you too. Remember, it's enough to be like Jesus when these things happen. Right? Well, if they're going to be like Jesus, they're going to be maligned. They're going to get accused of being devils themselves. They are Jesus' servants and are therefore of His household and will bear the brunt of how that household is perceived. And again, remember, not too long from now, Jesus is going to go away. And they're going to be the very visible body of Christ And they're going to bear the brunt of this. And they're going to receive from the hands of other people what Jesus received from the Pharisees and others. Actually, Jesus says, how much more will they malign those of His household? It's actually going to be worse for them. And Jesus says, it's enough in the midst of all this if you're like me. It's really all they need, right? being like Jesus and being even more persecuted and maligned than He was. That's enough. Sound frightening? Well, Jesus knows that. Next verse. 1026. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So, he starts the sentence with so. So, since it's enough for you to be like me, and that means that things are going to be worse for you than they are for me, so have no fear of them. <laughs> it's going to be worse, so don't be afraid. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Hey, guys, it's going to get tough. It's going to be worse, so you better batten down the hatches. You better shore up the defenses. No. So, have no fear of them. Now remember, Jesus has already said that they're going to be hated by all men, they're going to be betrayed by their own families, and that they're going to die for Him. So, have no fear of them. (laughs) The Pharisees, the religious crowd, all men, their own families, are all going to persecute and harass them. So have no fear of them. Yeah, okay. How do I do that? Because that's a command. Jesus is not giving, I hope you don't have any fear of them. He's telling them not to be afraid of them. And Jesus is going to tell them why. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What? (laughs) Going to have to translate that one, Jesus. I don't quite get it. What's he saying here? Why should this statement make them not afraid? Don't be afraid of them because everything they do will be revealed and known. They are going to be persecuting God's men, these persecutors are. Now how do you think that's going to go when they're judged by God? 
They're sneaking around, they're plotting, they're scheming, they're setting traps, just very devilish stuff on how to trick and trap Jesus and then His men. Well, listen to me. One day, God is going to reveal what they have done. God is going to judge what they have done. God is going to show it all. And God is going to pass judgment on it all. And that's really bad news for those who are causing all this trouble for Jesus and His followers. So don't be afraid of them. Well, does that lessen the persecution? Not at all. Not at all. It does not lessen at all the impact of what they are doing in the present. The disciples will still be persecuted. They'll still be betrayed and they'll still be killed. So don't be afraid of that. God is going to make all things right in the end. And that makes the present problems, hear me, worth it. It's good later. And that's better, right? Good later is better. That's what we said about delayed gratification, right? Eat a frog so you can have a filet mignon later. Like, I don't want to eat a frog. You can't have the filet until you eat the frog. Give me the frog. Medium well on the steak, by the way. I'm kind of drifting toward medium as I get older. Is that a thing? I don't, I don't know. Is eating the frog worth the filet? Yeah, sure. Let me just get it out of the way. How, how big a frog are we talking? You know, is it... And Jesus is saying, the frog now, the hard now, the persecution now is worth the judgment later. And my question is, is it? Jesus says it is, and even says that later is going to be so good... Don't even be afraid of imminent danger and problems now. Don't be afraid of what is now because later is going to be so much better. God is going to reveal and judge all things aright. Don't trade your hope now because that hope is what's going to sustain you now and later. We'll get to that in application. Until that hope becomes visible, we wait. Because hope that is visible is not hope anymore. And one day we won't need to hope anymore. And that's worth it. It's worth getting to that point to where we don't have to hope anymore. But we ain't done yet. So they shouldn't be afraid. But what should they be then? What should they do? Verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered... Proclaim on the housetops. Okay, so now to actions. Now please note that Jesus' call to action here revolves around one thing. His call to action revolves around His words. Think that's important? You bet it is. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Know that God is going to judge all, so you say what I'm saying to you. What I tell you in the dark, say that in the light. Go out and openly proclaim what you've heard me saying. Make it public. How public? What I whisper, go to the top of the houses and proclaim it. Herald it. Now we've got pitched roofs, so we're like, what, what? I'm not not 
going up there, they had flat roofs, and it was actually very common practice to make public proclamations, public announcements from the top of your house. Climb the steps, go to the top. Hey, everybody! Having a party, my place next week. You're all invited. Everybody goes, yeah, party next week. And everybody could hear. They didn't have all this noise pollution that we've got. They just had people walking around, some animals here and there. So somebody would get on top of their house and scream it. And everybody's like, oh, announcement party, his place next week. Jesus is saying, go to the roof and proclaim what I'm even whispering. Everything that you hear from me, go public with it. Yell it from the housetop. Project it from a place that will be seen and heard by all who are around. Jesus says even His faintest whispers were to be shouted from the most public of places. Be so not afraid of those who persecute you that you make yourself uber visible and uber loud. Proclaim, shout, live out in plain view the very message that your accusers are trying to silence. Knowing that doing so will bring even more persecution. There's that joker we've been looking for who won't shut up. He's up on top of the house. Go get him. Secret messengers might preserve their lives, but they won't have the public impact that housetop proclaimers will. And housetop proclaimers will have rewards that others will not. Those who are repeating and preaching Jesus' words have nothing to fear at all. I didn't say you wouldn't suffer persecution. I didn't say that the world will hug you and say you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, they're going to hate you for it. But they've got nothing to fear at all. Jesus amplifies this in the next verse, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He had told them not to fear those who would malign them. But here he ups the ante. And do not fear those who kill the body. Um, uh, (laughs) Jesus, did you misspeak? Is that what you meant to say? Did did, did you mean to say, don't fear those who can't kill the body? No. I think we can rationalize not fearing people who say mean things about us. We might not like it, but really, they ain't nothing to be afraid of. Sticks and stones, no. But what about those who can make your body stop living? Jesus says, don't fear them either. Do not fear those who kill the body. Now, did you hear that? You said, well, sure, that was just for them. Was it? Do not fear those who kill the body. Do not. Well, I'm thinking if there's anybody I should fear, it would be the one who can kill the body, right? Am I right? I mean, this body ain't much, y'all, but it's, it's all I got. If somebody could take that life, I would think I'd be right to fear them. But Jesus has a completely different perspective than every other non-God person. Because He can see more than just the present. 
He can see beyond this temporary physical life into the life after this one. And He would call our attention to do the same thing. No, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Aha! There's more than just a body. Our lives are not just physical. And I'm afraid we restrain them to the physical so often we just want to be pleased physically. It's true that in the here and now, our lives are expressed through our bodies. But that very truth points to the reality beyond just the present. It points us to a future when our spirit will be separated from our bodies and our life goes on. Jesus says, those who kill the body cannot kill the soul. They're powerless to do so. If someone kills me now, I don't die. Oh, my body ceases functioning. James says the body without the spirit is dead. The body's dead, but the spirit isn't. Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He wasn't saying that those who believed in Him would never leave their bodies. He was saying they would go on living in their spirit and that they would be resurrected, a spirit in a new body at a later time after their spirit left their old body. And there's nothing that anybody can do about that. So don't fear mere mortals who can only cause your spirit to leave your body. They can't kill your soul, your inner man. But there is one who can. So Jesus says, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And who is that? It's God. God can destroy both soul and body in hell, and he will. Now let me ask you a question. Does that mean that hell is temporary where people will cease to be? No, it does not. It means that the unrighteous will be resurrected too. And their spirits will return to their resurrected bodies. They will be judged and then they will be cast into eternal punishment and their body and their soul will be destroyed in the fires of hell. But their spirit will go on being tortured for eternity in that same fire. Spirits are eternal. For the wicked, bodies and souls are not. What's the difference between a soul and a spirit? The soul is the go-between between the body and the spirit. Your thoughts, your feelings. God has placed His Spirit into our spirit and that is imperishable. But that union between the body and the spirit, the soul, can be destroyed when the body is destroyed. The body will be destroyed for the wicked, hence their soul will be too, but their spirit will go on suffering forever. Spirits are eternal. So for the wicked, bodies and souls are not eternal. For the righteous... We will be preserved complete, body, soul, and spirit in heaven, worshiping and serving God for all eternity. So, don't fear anyone who can only separate you from your body for a short time until God gives it back to you, better than before it was taken from you. So again, the focus is don't fear the temporary. Look forward to the eternal. But how can I know that God will take care of me? Why would He take up my case 
before these persecutors. Verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus uses very relatable terms and examples to communicate His truths. Flowers, judges, birds. And here, He calls His disciples' attention like He did back in Matthew 6. Consider the birds of the air. Remember that? They don't work. They don't store up in barns, but your Father feeds them. Here, He calls their attention back to birds. If they want to know if God will protect and preserve their lives, even if their bodies are killed, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Jesus says that God is intimately involved in the cheapest forms of life on the planet. Cheap, cheap. God is intimately involved in the cheapest forms of life on the planet. A half-cent bird does not die without him knowing it. There's even some implications that it could mean when they hop. Every time they hop, God is aware of it. And if he cares about half-cent birds, do you think he might be concerned for you as his children? You could buy two sparrows for a penny. Two for one. John MacArthur said it was commonly known that if you bought four for two pennies, you'd get a fifth one for free. And yet God knows when these half-penny birds fall to the ground. He knows, He sees, and is directly involved in every bird that falls. Your Father is God Almighty, and He's concerned about birds hitting the ground. But... Jesus says in verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So what's that mean? It means that God is so intimately involved in the lives of His children that every hair on their heads has a number assigned to them by that same Father. Every detail of God's children's lives are monitored closely by their Father, including, but not limited to, the number of hairs on their heads. I love my wife and I have no clue how many hairs are on her head. It's a lot. I'm not that intimately involved with her. And here Jesus says, God is so intimately involved and concerned with you, He has even numbered the hairs of your head. So whom shall I fear? Am I going to die by accident? No! The birds don't die by accident. And not one hair of my head is going to come out without God knowing it. God's busy at my house because there's hair all in our bathtub. There's, there's 28, so 64. What? 273. <laughs> Throw it against the... That, uh, that's a little too intimate, isn't it? 
Does it show enough concern on God's part to know and to care about what's happening with you to say that He knows every hair of your head? Jesus says, yeah, it shows enough concern. Fear not, therefore, since your very hairs are numbered, know that you are of more value than many sparrows. You're worth more to God than birds. And He knows when one of them falls out of the sky. You are worth so much to God that He, He has numbered every hair on your head. And since that's true, you have no reason to fear. Not even physical death. Which to us sounds like the absolute worst thing that can happen. Jesus says, no, don't fear this temporary situation, but fix your eyes on the eternal situation. Look to the final day when all things will filter through your Father in heaven. Because that day is coming. Verses 32 and 33 as we finish up. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So is a conclusion word, right? Jesus has spent these verses telling His disciples not to be afraid, but to share His words boldly, knowing that persecution and death will result from it. You will be persecuted, you will be handed over to death, and you are to share My words, knowing your Father cares for you more than you can understand. So, the end result of all of this will be shown. When? How? So, in conclusion, so everyone who acknowledges Me before men who's not afraid of men and their faces, who are not afraid of death, those people Jesus also will acknowledge before His Father who is in heaven. But for those who deny Jesus before men, preferring the present, preferring to preserve their life now, wanting the comforts and the pleasures of the world now instead of Jesus now, what happens with them? Jesus will deny them before His Father who is in heaven. All being said, Jesus says, all this comes down to the final judgment. And that's later. In the future. To paraphrase Gladiator movie, what we do now echoes into eternity. And that is the sum of all of this matter. What you do now, listen to me, is not just about now. What you do now affects what happens when you stand before God at the end of all things. In one part of the Scripture, Jesus says, every idle word will be called into account. What you do now is not just about now. Good later is better, right? So, if you acknowledge Jesus before men now, knowing it will bring persecution, betrayal, and even death, then He will acknowledge, say He knows you before His Father who is in heaven. And note the emphasis here. The question is not, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? What's the difference? The difference is, who does this? Well, I'm going to get to know Jesus so I can go to heaven. No, you're not. 
God's going to break into your life and get to know you and you're going to go to heaven. This is not about you learning about who Jesus is, even though you need to do that. It's about whether Jesus knows you or not. Ephesians says that He foreknew us before the foundation of the world. If you deny Jesus and His message in the here and now, preferring your comfort and deciding to preserve your physical life now, then Jesus will deny that person before the Father who is in heaven. You want to live now? You want to keep this life and not speak the message of the nearness of the kingdom of the heavens in the midst of a hostile population because the population is hostile? You can do that. But it's going to cost you dearly in the life to come. It's going to cost you your body and your soul in hell. Well, that's not very nice. I didn't say it. You can hate me for it if you want to. Those are Jesus' words. Acknowledge Jesus now on earth. Be acknowledged by Him later in heaven. Deny Jesus now on earth. Be denied by Him later in heaven. And it is really that simple. Eat your marshmallow now. There will be none later. But it's worse than not having a second marshmallow. Know that now and live in light of the truth of what is to come later. It is literally a matter of eternal life or death. We dare not miss that. And that's what Jesus is saying to us today. So, how do we apply this? Three Ps. Persecution, proclamation, preparation. Persecution, proclamation, preparation. First application point is persecution. Listen to me. Following Jesus will bring persecution. You say, well, that was an application point last week. It's true. But our application point this week is our attitude toward how we deal with this truth. While it's true that we are to endure this persecution, which was last week, Jesus calls us today to not fear the persecution. You say, well, I'm a little scared of being persecuted. Don't. There's your, there's your application point. Don't. You say, come on now. <laughs> That's not all the application point. While it's true that we are to endure this persecution, Jesus calls us today to not even fear that persecution. And while that's pretty challenging for sure, it's also quite freeing, isn't it? How many times have we foregone obedience to God because we were afraid of what might happen if we were obedient? We were afraid of what somebody would say. We're afraid of how somebody would react. We're afraid we might lose our job. You see, we are so very tied to the here and now. We are so very influenced by the here and now. We've lost sight of the truth of eternity being of much more importance than the here and now. And until we can live in light of eternity and what we receive then and there, we will not overcome this fear of consequences in the present. What I want later has to be better than what I want now. Good later is better. And it has to be so good, so much better, that I do not hesitate to engage whatever is in my path in the present because it pales in comparison to what comes later. 
We see this with perfect clarity in Romans 8. Of course, it's Romans 8. Romans 8, 18 through 25. Listen, I'm just going to read this and and say a little bit about it. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But... If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're not afraid. Why? Because later is better. And not just better, so much better that it's not worth comparing to what we're going through now. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't. But I know that in glory, it's not going to be worth comparing to the beauty and the wonder and the glory that God gives us then. Nobody is going to get to heaven and say, my suffering was not worth it. Nobody. So let's put those spectacles on now. Yes, this is hard. Yes, I would have chosen a different path, but this is preparing for me a weight of glory that is not worth comparing what I'm going through now. And if you can't develop that mindset, your suffering is going to throw you off track every time. And it's not going to be enough to be like Jesus who just silently endured and waited knowing, and and Scripture says it was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus didn't say, oh, the cross, yes. He despised it, but endured it because of what was set before Him, which was your salvation, my salvation, many sons being brought to glory. And Jesus says, I will endure this because of that up there. Jesus was not afraid of the cross. Jesus was not afraid of physical death because He knew what would follow afterwards. Persecution is going to come and do not be afraid of it. And what we see here is the power of hope. Not just for the future, but for now. Hope gives you power now. If we truly know that anything, and I mean anything that we suffer now, is not worth comparing to the glory that it is bringing in our lives later, there is absolutely nothing that we can't walk through. And I'm not just talking about gritting our teeth and getting through it, but getting through it with dramatic, life-giving hope. Not just enduring, but looking at it, whatever it may be, and not being afraid of it. Why? Because we know that our Father cares so much for us that He will walk through the fire with us. And His love for us in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, is life-giving and the very power that we need for hope that is tangible, though not seen in the moment. We know that good later is better and we lean on Him to carry us through to that later point. Not afraid of what may happen because nothing can happen that is not in His care. Nothing! 
Do not be afraid. Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We sang it this morning, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He doesn't vanquish the enemies. He doesn't make them go away. He gives us provision in the midst of being in the presence of our enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. In the midst of persecutions, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, so I will fear no evil. Don't be afraid of persecution. That's point one. Point two, proclamation. This is pretty easy, right? Very similar to our point of application last week when we talked about sufficiency. Remember that? And what did we say was sufficient then? The Word of God. What did Jesus say in today's text that we are to proclaim? His words. What I tell you in the dark, what you hear whispered. It was Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings that the disciples were to bring to light and shout from the housetops. And so our message is found where? In Jesus' words. Is our message in our testimony? Is our message in our feelings? Is our message in our experiences? Is our messages found in what the guy on the internet said? Hope not. Our message is to come from Jesus' words. Nothing wrong with your testimony. Probably nothing wrong with your experience. Probably something wrong with what the guy on the internet said. But they're not sufficient. And the proclamation that I make to a lost and dying world are the very words of Jesus. Primarily, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our message is to come from Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says that the disciples are to make disciples going, baptizing, and teaching. And what were they to teach? Matthew 28, 20 tells us plainly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It was the commandments of Jesus that the disciples were to teach their disciples to observe. Teach them to do what I have commanded you. And guess what? The same is true for us. We have all that we need to teach people to be disciples in the 66 books of the Bible. Those are Jesus' words. And we said last week that men hate God by nature. Well, guess what else they hate? They hate God's Word. And preaching, teaching, and conveying God's Word will bring you into conflict with the world. Is that something to be afraid of? No. That was point one. If we clearly proclaim God's Word, the world will oppose and hate us, just like Jesus told us in today's passage. And we've already seen that we're not to fear that. So proclaim the Word of God. How much of it? All of it. Not your favorite section? Only? unashamedly, not compromising or embellishing it to make it more palatable for those who are hearing it. If the Bible says something is sin, call it sin. 
If the Bible defines an institution, don't let it be redefined. If the Bible calls men to repent, call men to repent. If the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God, then say that Jesus is the only way to God. Proclaim His Word. Not yours, not theirs. His Word. Proclaim His truth. Not the world's compromise. Persecution. Proclamation. Why do we proclaim His truth and not the world's compromise? Because preparation. This life is not all there is. We are preparing for eternity. That's what now is all about. Now is not about now. And it's always now, right? Now is about later. To not see and to know that is not only short-sighted, it's disastrous. And I can't speak for you, but I know that I don't live with that mindset most of the time. I'm concerned about now. What's next? What's in front of me? What I... And we should focus on what's in front of us, but not just to get it done, but to prepare us for eternity, to prepare other people for eternity. This earthly life is preparing us for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, do you get that? Do you live with that in mind? With this life being preparation for the next? With this life not being all there is? Revelation 20, 12 through 15, the last passage we'll look at. This is the last days. This is the end times. This is when all things are finishing. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If someone denies Jesus in the here and now, then Jesus will deny them at that time later and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Destruction of body and soul with the Spirit being eternally punished justly by a holy God. But if someone acknowledges Jesus in the here and now, is preparing for eternity, Jesus will acknowledge them on that final day and say that He does indeed know and love them intimately and personally. And Jesus' Father, our Father, will welcome that one into His presence for eternal joy and blessing. Are you living in preparation for that day? Or are you just focused on what you want, how you feel, what's for lunch here and now? Good later is better. Let's live now in the light of that truth. Let's pray. God, I put all my hope 
and the words of your promise. I put all my hope in your words knowing that you have words of eternal life and there's nowhere else we could go, nobody else we could go to who has those words. God, I pray that we would leave this place today not fearing persecution, that we would go out boldly to proclaim your words and prepare ourselves and others for that final day when we stand before you. We need your help, and you are willing to give it, so we praise you for that. God, if there is somebody here who is not prepared, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sins, show them their need of a Savior, and show them Jesus as that Savior. And may they put all of their hope in His finished work so that they might know forgiveness of sins and introduction into eternal life. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this time. God, send us out to be fruitful and to multiply. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks. Stand eat with us if you can.